Friends, sometimes, sometimes following Jesus doesn't seem a very sensible thing to be doing. And uh, I'm not just talking about getting out of a warm bed on a cold Sunday morning. I know of Christian parents whose grown-up children think that they're old-fashioned and silly for taking Jesus so seriously. I know of Christian women who get no end of drama from their unbelieving husbands. Christian children whose families have actually disowned them for being Christians. I know people who have lost many of their friends for being Christians. I know of Christians who have suffered bullying in the workplace because of their faith. Christians whose health have so deteriorated as a result that they actually are no longer able to work. This very day, we're meeting in freedom, but this very day, some Christians will lose their life for being Christian. Sometimes following Jesus doesn't seem a very sensible thing to be doing at all. This morning, we've reached the end of our series on 1 John. And in these final verses of the letter, John wants us to know that following Jesus is, in fact, the most sensible thing you can possibly be doing. And John shows us this by listing off six different things you can know with certainty when you do have a faith in Jesus Christ. You may have noticed that while the passage was being read earlier. All the different times John refers to knowing certain things. Verse 13, twice in verse 15, verse 18, verse 19, twice in verse 20. Know that this is true, he says. Know that this is true. Know that this is true. It's all about how when you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, it's all about how you can know certain things with certainty. And therefore, how we should never ever give up on having a faith in Jesus Christ, even though it may not seem the most sensible thing to be doing in the eyes of the world. Let's see how it works by quickly running through these six things we can know when we believe in Jesus. And the number one thing you can know, and this is the biggie really, which threads the whole others together, know that you have eternal life. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. We've noticed this verse a few times already in this series, because as the verse implies, this has been the driving force of why John has written the letter in the first place. I write these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life. Now remember, as we've picked up in the earlier sections of the letter, John is writing this to a group of people who are under pressure to walk away from having a belief in Jesus. People who are surrounded by neighbours and friends, maybe even family, who are saying that Jesus is not the Christ and that it's silly to think of Jesus being the Son of God come to earth. But John has written this letter to tell them that that's exactly who Jesus is. Remember how he started the letter. Guys, I was there. I lived with Jesus, I saw him, I heard him, I spent time with him and I'm telling you, Jesus really is the Son of God. That's how the letter started. And therefore here as the letter finishes, here at the end, whoever believes in him really does have eternal life. Which is an amazing thought. To actually know with a sense of certainty that you have eternal life. 
Lots of people wish that they have eternal life. A lot of people hope that they'll be in heaven. With Jesus, you can know for sure. And it's not an arrogant thing to say because it's not something we earn, is it? It's a gift from God because of Jesus' death on the cross. As John said in the previous chapter, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, uh, sorry, in the previous uh, passage, God has given us eternal life and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. So friends, don't be swayed by what other people might tell you. Don't even be swallowed up in any self-doubt that you might have. Don't be tricked by the evil one into thinking that you're not good enough to have eternal life and that it's a bit smug to think that you might have eternal life. It's not smug at all. God wants you to know it. God takes no delight in you being doubtful about this. He wants you to know that you have been saved. He wants you to be confident about this. Because as John has said so many other times in the letter, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are born of God. You have his spirit. That's how you've come to believe in Jesus in the first place. You and God are family. So rest easy. You have eternal life. And as such, a second thing you know is that you are heard by God. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and let me just pause there. I know it's only mid-sentence, but it's worth pausing here. Let this register with you. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you know you have eternal life, you have confidence in approaching God, you know that he hears you. The God of all the universe hears you because remember again the person who believes that Jesus is the son of God they're one of God's children and what parent does not hear their child's voice as a parent you can pick up your own child's voice a mile away can't you even in the middle of a crowded noisy room when that's your child when that's your child crying your ears just prick up that's God in you he hears you whether you're speaking to him in the silence of your bedroom at night or whether you're speaking to him during the day in the middle of a noisy office or a noisy factory or a noisy classroom, he hears you. His ears prick up at the sound of your voice. That's astounding. God does not actually promise this to non-Christians. I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible where God promises to hear the prayers of non-Christians in this same way. I mean, I know he's God, of course, he hears everything, but nowhere does he promise to respond to or to hear out the requests of non-Christians. But he does to you when you are one of his children. In fact, more than simply hearing you, the third thing to notice and to know is that he'll answer you. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Now, please notice here that John is not saying that God will do absolutely everything you ask of him, okay? I mean, you can certainly ask God about winning lotto, and as a follower of Jesus, God will certainly have heard you ask for the lotto win, 
But back in verse 14, the context here is about asking for anything according to his will. In other words, when we ask for things in line with God's loving intentions for us, of course he'll give them to us. When we ask God in line with his loving intentions, of course he'll shower us with them, which is a lovely promise. God's not going to withhold anything good at all from you. Just ask him for it, it's yours. And if you don't get what you asked for, it clearly wasn't good, and so you can rejoice that God didn't give it to you. Now, admittedly, it's not always easy to see that. Sometimes we think a thing is good, and yet God does not give it to us. At those times, it's helpful to remember back to chapter 4. God is love. He's not mean-spirited. He's shown that by sending his own precious son as a sacrifice for our sins. God is pro-you, more than you can imagine. And so have confidence. He knows what he's doing. And every truly good thing you ask for, you will have what you have asked of him. And in the context of 1 John, I think the especially good thing that John has in mind here is asking for eternal life. Because that's what he immediately goes on to talk about regarding prayer. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Again, you see, it's the idea of having life, eternal life, which kicked the whole passage off in verse 13. It's the idea of having life that's again on view here, this time in terms of praying for brothers and sisters who might be entangled in, lo- in sin and asking God that, they, that, that he would still give them life asking God to restore them and keep working in them. And John is saying, of course God will do that. He loves doing that. They're his children. Of course he'll give them life. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. And so no matter what it is, no matter how many times you or someone else has done it, no matter how bad or shameful you think it might be, pray and God will give them life. As John's already told us back in chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Mind you, John does say that there is one sin not to pray about, doesn't he? It's the end of verse 16 he says that. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. Now maybe we need to pause here for a moment because what exactly is this sin that leads to death? Some people refer to this passage as referring to the unforgivable sin, is what they call it even though please notice that phrase is not in the passage at all, nor is there any even use of the word forgiveness. So I think it's a shame when people use that phrase, unforgivable sin, because as soon as you mention something like unforgivable sin, suddenly everyone gets nervous and they, because they think they might have done it. What if I've inadvertently committed the unforgivable sin because I didn't realise it was the unforgivable one? especially when there's no shortage of just random suggestions as to what this unforgivable sin is. Divorce. Abortion. Suicide. I've heard all of them mentioned as the unforgivable sin. They're not. But you see, it totally undermines the the intention of the passage, doesn't it? Because remember, verse 13, this is a passage all about how those who believe in the name 
of the Son may know and have confidence that they have eternal life. It's not a passage about worrying that you may have disqualified yourself from it, from the unforgivable sin. So what then is this sin that leads to death? Well, the context makes it obvious that it's rejecting Jesus as the Christ. Just four verses earlier, in that mega verse that we noticed a couple of weeks back, where it said, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So obviously in the context, the sin that leads to not having life, the sin that leads to death, it's the sin of not having the Son. It's the sin of rejecting Jesus. It's the sin of refusing to believe that Jesus is God's Christ. And John is saying here, don't think that God will give life to anyone who does that. Don't bother asking God to give eternal life to anyone who does not want to have anything to do with Jesus. Now, I think in its context, he's got in mind the Jews at the time who were refusing to believe that Jesus was their Christ. But it's equally true of us, that if you know someone who is going through this life consistently ignoring Jesus, if you know someone consistently rejecting Jesus, not believing Jesus to be who he is, don't ask God to simply ignore that and give this person eternal life anyway. He won't. He who does not have the Son does not have life. A much better prayer for people like that is to ask God to soften their heart and to ask them to repent, ask God for them to repent and to start following Jesus. Again, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, it's all about the necessity of Jesus. But don't think that God is going to just ignore someone who goes through life ignoring Jesus and give them eternal life anyway. He won't. But John's on a bit of a roll now, and some other things we need to know when you believe in the name of the Son of God. These keep tumbling out of the passage in rapid succession, such as knowing that we don't continue in sin. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one can't harm them. We can pick the pace up a bit here because this is something John's already said a lot about already in the letter, about how God's children don't sin. It's not that it's impossible for us, it's just that it's inconceivable that we would want to. Not with God's spirit. Chapter 3, verse 9, he told us, no one of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They can't go on sinning because they've been born of God. If you want to chase the idea, this idea up a bit more, jump on the website, the first talk in this second instalment back in July. This was all about it. But John's wrapping it all up. He's not telling us anything new other than be remember this, know this, come to terms with this. You don't continue to sin anymore. That's not who you are. You're a child of God, which is the next thing to know. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Again, nothing new here. It's the truth that we are new people in Christ. As Christians, we haven't just turned over a new leaf. We are born again. We are profoundly new creations. We are, have been adopted into God's family. We've been given his spirit. We, we belong to God now. The rest of the world doesn't belong to him. The rest of the world may be under the control of the evil one, but you're God's children. Be aware of that. Know that you're different. Don't expect to fit in all the time. 
You won't. There will be times when conversations and discussions and things are going to happen around you and you will feel awkward and you will feel uneasy. Brace yourself for that. You're one of God's children in a world under the control of the evil one. So when those moments of awkwardness and pressure come, comfort yourself with the knowledge of the sixth thing you know. You know the one true God. Verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. Now, there's actually two mentions of knowing things in those verses, aren't there? Uh, And look, despite the fact that seven would have been a great biblical number to have had, I've bundled them together in number six because they're interwoven. It's about knowing the true God because we know that the Son of God himself has stepped foot on this earth. A recent poll showed that over half the population think that there's intelligent life beyond earth. We know there is. God has visited this planet. God has taken the guesswork out of whether he exists or not. He has taken the guesswork out of what he's like. He has come and shown us. And therefore, by knowing Jesus, we know what's true about God. And that's the key word there, isn't it? Notice that that word true, it gets repeated three times in the one verse so as to emphasise this. We know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Truth is a slippery sort of idea nowadays, especially when it comes to God. But friends, there is one true God. And just like you can get it wrong about what side of the road to drive on, and if you do, you, if you do get it wrong, you'll get into a world of trouble, you can get it wrong about God, and if you get it wrong about him, you will also end up in a world of trouble, more so. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, you know the one true God, which is an extraordinary privilege, and which, notice there in verse 20, brings us full circle back to the issue of eternal life. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life is what started this passage in verse 13 and it's what rounds out the section in verse 20. To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, know that you have eternal life. It's really what's been driving the whole letter, really, all the way through. If you're here this morning and you believe in the name of the Son of God, if you're here now and you truly believe in Jesus as the Christ, then whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever you've done, whether you're a soldier, sailor or a candlestick mate, you have eternal life. And if that is not enough, God hears you. He answers your prayers. He never withholds anything good. And you know not to continue in sin because you know you're a child of God. You know the one true God, the source of eternal life. And it all leads to John slipping in one final sentence in verse 21. Because after listing off all these wonderful things to know, he concludes by giving us something to do. 
verse 21. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Now, at one level, that's a bit of a surprising last sentence, isn't it? Where did this sudden mention of idols come from? Uh, John has not mentioned idols at all up until now. What's the deal here? Well, he may not have used the word idol before, but there's a sense in which the threat of them has been what's prompted the whole letter in the first place. Because remember, John is writing to a group of people who are under pressure to give Jesus away. These are people who are being told by those around them that Jesus is not the Christ, that he's not the Son of God. Or to put it another way, they are being tempted to turn away from Jesus and whatever they turn to instead of Jesus, that's going to be an idol. Because remember verse 20, Jesus has shown us the true God. And therefore, if you're not with Jesus, you're unto a false God. And so here at the end, John finishes it all by saying what really is the most obvious thing to say. Don't don't do that. Don't turn away from Jesus. Keep belief in him. He gives you eternal life. A little while back, I discovered uh, an old stash of comics from my childhood days. Uh, These comics were all crammed up in the back of a cupboard, which I'd forgotten all about. I noticed, however, that some of the comics were first editions of Volume 1. So I hopped online and uh, went to eBay to see what some of them might be worth and discovered that some of them get sold for about $200 to $300 each. They're more valuable than our car. (laughs) And so now, they're not all squashed up in the back of a wardrobe forgotten about. Now, they're all laid out nice and flat in special plastic folders to keep the dust off them, and I know exactly where they are. Having discovered their value, I look after them now. In some ways, that's what John is doing at the finish of his letter. Over something a lot more important than comics. To a group of people who are being tempted to turn away from Jesus... John is reminding them of just how valuable Jesus is. And that when you believe in the name of the Son of God, know that you have eternal life, let alone all those other wonderful things. So whatever you do, don't turn away from him. And that may require some work not to turn away from him. It may means some difficult choices. Maybe it's going to mean owning up to a sin that you know is leading you away from Jesus, but you've got to deal with it so that you don't. It may mean working through some anger or some hurt that is sort of building up bitter roots within you. It may mean giving away money so as to help yourself stop loving it so much. It may mean walking away from some pastimes that you actually really enjoy doing. But in your heart of hearts, you know that there's a stirring of an idol growing there. But whatever it takes, you need to safeguard your belief in the Son of God. And so here at the end of this majestic letter, really, God loves you so much that he's calling on us to get our act together 
and to realise how important Jesus is and to give him our all. Because when you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. Who would turn their back on that? So, dear children, keep yourself from idols. I'll pray. Father, thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have eternal life. That we know we have eternal life. That we can live out this life in great assurance and confidence, knowing that you hear us. That you don't withhold any good thing from us. That we're your children. That we know the one true God. Father, thank you for these things. Father, we pray that we would value them and treasure them and cherish them so much that we would indeed do whatever it takes to turn away from those things in our lives that might be distracting us and entangling us and causing us to drift away from your Son. May that never be the case. And Father, we pray that we would be good for each other in helping each other Uh, to stay loyal to Jesus and all the more as the day of his return approaches. Amen.